Welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a friend of the show. Um, she's a friend of mine. She's amazing. I think the last time I saw you in person, we were celebrating another magnificent Black woman in Judge Michelle Childs. Uh, but we have none other than, I always call her Dean, but she is now President Danielle Holly Walker. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. So you're a friend of the show who's been here before, uh, but you've changed jobs since you were on the show last time. Talk about your new role leading Mount Holyoke and how different it is leading an institution like Mount Holyoke versus your old job in leading Howard Law School. Yes, I'm making the transition right now from from being dean of Howard Law for nine years to being president of Mount Holyoke. There's a lot in common between the two schools. Mount Holyoke was founded in 1837, only a couple of decades before Howard was founded. And the thing that's really in common between the two schools is they're very empowering. So I feel like Howard is a place where students feel empowered by their education and Mount Holyoke is a place where students come to feel like they belong and feel empowered by their education instead of education tearing them down. It's interesting that higher ed is supposed to empower students, but often people come out of their higher ed experiences feeling like they've been broken down more than they've been built up. And Mount Holyoke is a place that builds you up. Look at that. I love it. That needs to be the new tagline, a place that builds up. I love it. So before we talk about affirmative action cases, uh, which I think you have a unique perspective on as a legal scholar, former law school dean, and now the leader of a selective institution like Mount Holyoke, I want to talk about this Alabama case that came down from the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago. How surprised were you about this case? And what does this case mean, not only for Alabama, but states like South Carolina, Louisiana, who could similarly gain a second competitive Democratic leaning seat if the court's reasoning were applied to some other maps? You know, I have to say, other than the affirmative action cases, this may have been the case I was most worried about from this term and worried about the viability of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, it's crazy that we have to think about whether, you know, uh, statutes like the Voting Rights Act that's been around for, you know, 60 years, whether it can survive Supreme Court scrutiny. But I was really, really worried that they would either um, find in a way that actually invalidated the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, or in a way that really took the teeth out of Section 2, as we saw them do in Shelby versus Holder. So I have to say, I was relieved Um, You know, it was great to see LDF have such a wonderful win. And it was surprising. And obviously it makes a big difference on the ground uh, for the black citizens of Alabama who would have essentially been stripped of their voting rights if the case had not come out in the right way. This makes a big difference for people on the ground in states like Alabama and others um, that may have the potential of this kind of congressional seat. I mean, I was surprised by the coalition. I was surprised by who wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, It just was a very... Um, I didn't expect Kavanaugh to be over there at all. So it, it just it just shocked me. I, yeah, I have We're seeing some interesting things this term. The ICWA case was also turned out in a way that I was a little bit surprised by, too. You know, people have lots of different theories. One is that uh, one of my favorite ones is that it's because the affirmative action cases are so disastrous that we got some good news before the ultimate bad news comes. So, you know, that's that's my current working theory is that they're kind of giving us a little bit. They want the institution's reputation to not be so clear cut on issues of race. 
And to, to tell people what ICWA is, that's the adoption, Native American adoption. Yes, case. yes. So the Indian Child Welfare Act case um, in which there is protection for Native American children. The question was, would ICWA apply? And of course, they recognize the rights under ICWA. And many people were afraid that the Supreme Court, similar to what they were afraid of in the Alabama voting case, would not recognize the civil rights issues that were at hand. And they did in the ICWA case, too. So I think those are two surprising outcomes which is, you know, making us a little bit more nervous. You will not have affirmative action in the next few weeks, but hey, let's, let's, I just think it's going away. Yeah. I'm wrong, but please, I want to be wrong, but I, I doubt it. Let's yeah. talk about, and they're not called affirmative action cases, but students for fair admission cases. Right. For people who aren't as familiar with the cases against Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill, what are they about and what's at stake? So there's a lot at stake. The SSFA versus Harvard case, SSFA versus UNC case really asked two legal questions of the same variety. In the UNC case, since it's a state school, the question is, does use of race as one factor in admissions, uh, is that unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment? And for Harvard, the same question under Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, these are plans that had been studied carefully. So Harvard, obviously, had consulted with many, many people before they adopted their plan. UNC did the same thing. Both of these cases had trials before district court judges who found that the plans were constitutional and okay under Title VI. They were affirmed at the appellate court level. And mostly that's because for years, going all the way back to Bakke in 1978, mm. the Supreme Court precedent is that you can use race as a factor in admissions, and it is perfectly constitutional. That was reaffirmed in Grutter almost 20 years ago now. And they decided this same issue in Fisher only about six years ago. So I think the reason that people are anticipating the overturn of affirmative action is there's no reason to take cert in this case unless the Supreme Court is ready to reverse itself, because a Republican appointed judge, Justice Kennedy, um, already upheld affirmative action with majority less than a decade ago. So that's a fresh new precedent with Republican votes and a Republican judge justice writing that opinion, there's nothing that's changed other than court composition. So that's the thinking is that this court has obviously decided it's ready to the same as Dobbs say in one sentence, all affirmative action cases up to this point have been wrongly decided, period. And today is a new day, period. And start there. And that's what they'll have to do because they'll be overturning almost 45 years of precedent. Before I get to my other scripted questions for you, I've been making the argument that there is a slippery slope. There was, we saw the slippery slope when in um, Dobbs and the way that they framed overturning Roe and how they framed overturning Roe, meaning that using that same log logic, you can extrapolate Brown v. Board, Loving, and many other cases. Um, which I would love to see a challenge to loving in front of Clarence Thomas, not because I want to overturn. I just want to see his brain work because um, I'm not sure what he would do. So is, is that slippery slope argument? Is, am I am I correct in that, especially as we look at the pending affirmative action cases? You're absolutely correct. I think beyond the outcome of Dobbs last year, beyond the outcome was terrible. But I think even more frightening was the line of reasoning. And the ability for the court to, with one opinion, sweep away 50 years of precedent. And they did it with very little reasoning 
and I would say encapsulated by that one sentence by Justice Alito, which was that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided, right? And which means if they can sweep away precedent that simply, they could do it in any case. And what's interesting is the 303 case with the website maker, uh, this term that's about whether you uh, you have the ability to deny making websites for gay couples. Arguably, if they find in, uh, you know, in favor of that website maker, I don't know what protects loving versus Virginia, because we know that objections to interracial marriage were based on supposed religious belief, too. So if a website maker can say, I don't want to make websites for you, even though she's actually never made a website, (laughs) which is interesting on standing, Um, if she can say that, what stops anyone from saying, I won't cater your wedding because you're an interracial couple? I uh, know exactly. I thought we already explored this with the cat. I thought we already did too. I thought we went down this road. Um, but it seems like there are a lot of roads that we've been down that we're going to have to go back down again. Um, you know, we're there on reproductive rights. We're about to be there on affirmative action. And I think the clock is being turned back 50 years right before our eyes. How far do you think the majority opinion goes based on your read of the oral arguments and the chatter amongst legal scholars? You know, the oral argument was extremely messy. Um, You know, a lot of questions, which would the hardest thing about the oral argument for me was that you would think that this was a constitutional law one class where we were asking hypotheticals about affirmative action. If you listen to that oral argument, you'd have very little reason to know that there were two trials, full trial records. They were asking hypotheticals that had nothing to do with the actual Harvard and University of North Carolina cases. So I'm very curious to see the writing in this case. How can they put together five or six votes based on because some people may want to go as far. I would say Justices Alito and Thomas to say there's no place for race to ever be considered in public life. It's against the 14th Amendment to ever even think about race in any decision in public life right, by the government ever. That's as far as they would want to go. Whereas others may just want to say diversity, the benefits of diversity in an educational setting is a compelling government interest, but UNC and Harvard got it wrong. So you could have anywhere from just a decision on narrow tailoring all the way to extreme statements that could have impact on, you know, everything from government contracting to diversity, equity, and inclusion measures to all kinds of other things. If the writing becomes so broad that they're talking about eliminating the government, not being able to consider race in any way in public life, that's, you know, those two, if you think about Justice Alito and Justice Thomas writing versus what Justice Roberts might write, both would be bad, right? But very, very different opinions in terms of the rhetoric and how broad they may go in the writing. Hmm. I mean, will will the case, will it just affect admissions or will it affect things like scholarships, DEI efforts, et cetera? And again, we have to wait and see. There's a lot of spec. It depends on how broad they write this case, but it will likely impact things like scholarships. It's hard to imagine that they would say you can't consider race in admissions without it being a constitutional violation, but you can consider race when you're giving scholarships. So it's likely to be that you cannot consider race in any way um, under the 14th Amendment. And the question of race proxies, so that was the other, I think, question of the oral argument was, can you consider things like zip codes or essays in which students write about valuing diversity or they write about being an American descendant of slaves or they write about being Native American or they write about being Latina? Can you consider essays that ask about the value of racial diversity 
and not consider race. So all of that is extremely up in the air. We'll have to wait for the court to tell us. And can the court even come to an agreement on what they think about all those things? So one speculation is that the opinion will come out and it will be very difficult for uh, people to tell what is unconstitutional, what is constitutional, and that there'll be a whole cascading group of litigation following this about how you actually follow the law that the Supreme Court uh, gives us in these opinions. So you're in an interesting position, I guess, you know, if you were still at Howard, would you be preparing for an influx of new students? And at Mount, at Mount Holyoke, the question is, how do you go out in, in the face of this ruling um, being what we believe it to be and still have and foster those elements of diversity that you value? That's a great question. I think the landscape for HBCUs and minority serving institutions in general, we have some data basically looking at California, Michigan, other places where there are propositions or state constitutional amendments that prevent the use of affirmative action. And I think what we've seen there is Black and Latino students have not disappeared from places like the entire University of California system. They've disappeared from Berkeley. They've disappeared from UCLA, but they're in lots of other kind of second tier University of California schools. And so I think what that indicates is we will see lots of students who may not feel welcome at places like UNC and Harvard anymore who may want to apply. But I have to say, you know, HBCUs, as we said in our amicus brief, are not fallback schools. So the competition for if you look at the acceptance rates at Howard this year, both undergrad and the law schools had an uptick in applications by 67 percent since 2020. These are not fallback schools. So the idea that a student would not be able to get into UNC and then come to a place like Howard and get in, that actually may not be true. And so I think that that is one of the things that people have been assuming and people like Justice Scalia and others for many years argued that there was a mismatch that Black and Latino students should, should basically be in minority serving institutions or lower ranked institutions that better fit them. And the question is, you know, is that really realistic at all? And even if it is in California, like what we see is essentially a two-tiered system. And I ha- I think that that undermines the entire system of higher ed to have two tiers where you say, you see Berkeley is almost exclusively white and Asian. Other schools have higher percentages of Black and Latino, Latina students. That is, I think, an absolutely harmful message to send about our society and a state. And then it could turn into a federal um, type situation with this happening in states all over the country. Well, this well, this ruling, it, it, let's say it's an adverse ruling, but I know it's hard for me asking you this question when you haven't read it. But should should private K through 12 schools be worried? Um, my, minority contracting programs. I mean, slippery slope, chopping block next. What does that look like? Yeah, I think depending on how it's written and who writes it, I think we'll know a lot. The minute that it's announced who wrote these opinions, we're going to know a lot from that moment. If it's Justice Alito and Justice Th- or Justice Thomas, I think we can truly prepare for it being an attack on government contracting it being an attack on pretty much private Schools, we saw the favorable outcome in the Fourth Circuit around uh, private schools in terms of race conscious recruiting and admissions, but it doesn't mean it will remain that way. And for schools like Mount Holyoke, where our entire system is built on producing culturally competent leaders. Right. So that's part of our mission is we are a women's college that's gender diverse 
and we promote excellence and we promote the ability for students to come here and learn how can you be a leader in this global community and in an America that's an increasingly racially diverse um, you know, country. And so it's really important to schools like Mount Holyoke and many other colleges and universities to be able to consider race. And we will consider to hold, we will continue to hold our values regardless of what the Supreme Court decides. We'll follow the law, but we will always value racial and ethnic diversity. We also have a, a few other major cases that are still pending from this court around student debt and independent state legislature case. Um, can you give us the Cliff Notes versions of those cases and where do you think they'll likely go? What does it mean for everyday people? Yeah, so Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case, um, this is the question of whether you know there can be any review once a state legislature has drawn uh, lines um, in terms of uh, looking at various voting districts. So it's an interesting case because it should arguably be moot. Now that there have been some agreements around the North Carolina legislature. So we'll see. I mean, that case is an interesting one. You wonder why they're still holding on to it uh, very much. The second case that you asked about, remind me. Um, the student student debt. Oh, student debt case. Yeah. So I think the student debt case, again, it's interesting that in both of those cases, similar to the Mefa Prestone case that um, has been bouncing around the courts from South Texas, then went up to the Supreme Court. You do have to wonder in the student debt case. So the question is, can you actually forgive, can Biden's student loan program go forward? Or is that found to be um, in contravention of the law? And the question there to me is standing again, even though standing seems to have fall, fallen by the wayside as a doctrine for this particular court. The question is, can borrowers sue who literally I don't know what interest they have? I've been asking, what interest does anyone have in whether the federal government forgives student loans? That's still my question after hearing the oral argument. I mean, if they can sue any taxpayer, the taxpayer they don't sue, have standing. Right. No. So they don't. There is no generalized taxpayer standing. So the question is, what is the basis for them to have standing and what way are they hurt by the federal government for giving these loans? And that's what I'll be curious about in that case to see is how the justices navigate looking at what is the harm to these particular uh, to these particular people who are trying to have that program overturned. So it's something to look at, obviously. Um, you know, it's of interest to a lot. It's interesting that many of these cases are of particular interest to young people, right? To people yeah. who will be applying to college, to people who will take out lots of student loans to go to college. The Supreme Court's making a lot of decisions that will burden the entire next generation of Americans. Same was true in the reproductive rights case. Mm -hmm. So they're making decisions that will impact young people, people under 25 today, it may have an impact on them for a long time. And so when we talk about the institution of the Supreme Court, there's no wonder that so many people have lost, you know, have lost confidence, but also are worried about our future. I mean, you look at the Equal Protection, I mean, the uh, Clean Water Act case that they yeah. just cited, the EPA case, again, burdening young people with dirty water, and with a horrible environment and tying the hands of the federal government to regulate it, you know, it's it's really you see almost like the Supreme Court in contravention with what's good in society. And that is a terrible direction for the court to move in. I mean, we all see why Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have retired 
when Barack Obama was president of the United States. Yeah, one of it's interesting that I mean, you think of the alternate history if the day after, you know, he was reelected in 2012, if she had announced on that day that she was retiring, I mean, you think about the alternate history and you think about for someone who I admire so much, she's one of the Supreme Court justices who I've always admired the most. You wonder if this will be one of the only things that people remember about her legacy. It's one of the things that makes me the saddest about that choice is now whenever you say her name, that one of the first things that comes up is she should have retired after almost no one talks about anything. else. It's become a critical part. I would say it's in the first paragraph of her bio now that she did not retire um, and left one know, of the, part of this. Yeah, that um, the George Bush swapping um, yeah. Harriet Myers for Justice Alito. Mm-hmm. Um, and the replacement of uh, Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas are three of the most consequential things that Supreme Court happened on the Supreme Court. And that just happened in the last 30 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So. It's interesting also that so many of Justice Thomas's former clerks are behind these affirmative action uh, cases because we know that SSFA, of course, is not a real um, yeah. plaintiff. They're simply an organizational plaintiff that is there to push an ideological agenda. It doesn't really represent the real interest of any Asian American students. And it's really powered by these Federalist Society networks that include a lot of former Thomas clerks. So that's the gift that just keeps on giving since I was in high school. I was like, he's been on the court since I was in high school. Wow. Yeah, he's been. Yeah. He's been- you taught at Harvard. Are you going to teach at Mount Holyoke? I am. I'm going to teach at Mount Holyoke. I think I'm going to teach a course. Um, I'm in the politics department now. So a, a political scientist everywhere, beware. I'm one of you. Um, you have over. to claim me now. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm going to teach a course on the Supreme Court. That's just one Supreme Court case a week. And then we're going to read historical background and political science background on what was happening in politics at the time. So imagine reading Brown, but also reading about the Red Scare and about the activism that came after Brown on both sides. Um, We're definitely going to read Dobbs. Um, and talk about kind of the fights over Roe versus Wade for 50 years, um, Marbury versus Madison, kind of one case a week um, to introduce students to reading constitutional law cases and the connection between political science and the decision-making of the Supreme Court. Well, Dean, President Danielle Hollywalker, we appreciate you always stopping by to show your joy, you're brilliant, and I am so excited about all your success. So thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you.